Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. You can read any of them all at my website. That's at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast. It is called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at brand new movies or recent movies that are out in theaters, VOD, new to streaming services, you can check that out at my website, quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the third of a three-part series looking at films of the 1980s in which the main protagonist can communicate with animals. They're adventure films, one and all. A little bit of fantasy elements, at least to the first two, but this one plays it a little more straight than the other two. In fact, it's more of a drama in a lot of respects. But there is a lot of action and adventure in it. It's from 1984 and it's called Greystoke. Also, it was released in its full title, Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. It is a PG-rated film. It does have nudity, disturbing images, and violence. This is the kind of movie that would definitely be PG-13, maybe even an R rating today. The runtime is 2 hours and 15 minutes. Christopher Lambert is the main star. Ralph Richardson, Ian Holm, Andy McDowell, and James Fox fill out some of the supporting roles. Hugh Hudson is the director. The screenplay credited to P.H. Vazic and Michael Austin. P.H. Vazic, by the way, that's a pseudonym. Robert Town is the actual screenwriter there, for reasons I will get into in the course of this review. Greystoke is based on elements that you could find within the Edgar Rice Burroughs novel. It was published back in 1912 and its title is Tarzan of the Apes. Greystoke is kind of contemporary to the times of the novel. It begins back in the 19th century, and that's where we find this young couple who are born into Scottish nobility. Their names are Jack Clayton and his wife Alice, who happens to be pregnant. They find themselves shipwrecked off the coast of Western Africa sometime later, and months after that, they give birth to a boy who quickly becomes an orphan. His mother dies of malaria, and his father is killed during this altercation he has with some nearby apes. After that altercation, one of the apes adopts this human baby as her own, raising this human with the other apes in the family. And when the boy grows into a man, he takes on the alpha male to become the leader of the tribe. Meanwhile, there is this expedition that arrives nearby. They're looking for specimens for the British Museum, flora and fauna and whatever they can find. This expedition gets viciously attacked by a nearby native human village, but surviving the slaughter is a Belgian named Philippe Darnot. Darnot's life is saved and his wounds are tended to by this mysterious ape man. Philippe realizes that his savior is the son of the married couple, the Claytons, who built this abandoned cabin in the vicinity and he dubs the jungle man John, John Clayton, after them. Darnot, he teaches this new companion to speak and to move and to behave like an aristocrat from civilized society before he takes him back to his ancestral estate in Scotland to reunite with his grandfather, the Earl of Greystoke. And there, John begins to develop feelings for his grandfather's ward, this American-raised woman named Jane That's the basic story. There's not a whole lot more to the story, but it's an adventure film, so the journey is much more important than the destination. Now, back in 1974, producer Stanley Carter, he had acquired the rights to Edgar Rice Burroughs' 1912 novel. Soon afterward, he hired the red-hot screenwriter named Robert Town to work on the screenplay. He had just done Chinatown and is a very acclaimed screenwriter of his era. 
Town tentatively named his screenplay Lord Greystoke, and Town envisioned this would be the real story, or at least as real as he could make it, of Lord Greystoke. He wanted it to be heavy and serious and seem like it was based on a real story. Unlike other cinematic and television and radio adventures that depicted Tarzan's very fun adventures, Town envisioned it as an origin story of sorts to this kind of tragic tale of this man out of sorts. He concentrates on Lord Greystoke's life as an orphaned infant surviving with his ape family until he reaches adulthood, and then it would culminate in a climax in which he would become accepted as the alpha leader among his ape clan. In other words, a touch of the beginning of 2001 A Space Odyssey, and then followed by this variation of Francois Truffaut's The Wild Child, and Town would spend the next few years doing a lot of research on England, on Africa, on primates, all during the 19th century to try to paint as authentic a picture as he could for this Tarzan release. By 1976, Town was also looked at as possibly directing this feature from his own completed script, which was at the time called one of the best that the studio had ever had. It would have been Town's first effort as a director, which filled the studio with a bit of worry. You know, it was a very expensive proposition, and the difficult logistics of a jungle shoot in Africa would give anyone pause, even seasoned directors. So they weren't quite sure, but Town was such a red-hot commodity, they wanted to keep him on board. Later, when Town had another idea in mind for a film, that was during a period when he had difficulty with the ending of Greystoke, the studio, Warner Brothers, they greenlit it, thinking that it would be good for him to have some experience making an easier film that they could monitor. And that film, called Personal Best, that was meant to be a test run for Town. But it would also, in the end, be the film that would divorce Town from Greystoke for good. Greystoke would be the first of a three-picture deal between producer Howard W. Koch. He was under contract with Warner Brothers. And this cinematic telling of Lord Greystoke's story had a budget at that time of approximately $8 million. Koch had to remove himself in 1979 when he became the president of the Academy for Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And meanwhile... Town would continue to tinker with that script in between doing uncredited punch-ups for other screenplays for struggling productions, Orca, Heaven Can Wait, a whole bunch of others. In 1981, another movie about Tarzan was set to be released by MGM. It was called Tarzan the Ape Man. The Burroughs estate sued the makers of Tarzan the Ape Man in court. They wanted the licensing issue because they did not have the rights to this, or so they thought. They claimed that they could remake their own film that they did back in the 30s. But there was some question as to whether that still held today for the copyright law that came out in the 70s. They wanted to strike a deal here for what they felt would be the definitive take on the Tarzan legend with this new Warner Brothers production. Also in 1981, Robert Town would lose the director's chair for Greystoke. He encountered difficulties completing his actual directorial debut, Personal Best. Town found himself in a legal battle bitterly with executive producer David Geffen and Warner Brothers over the alleged violations of his contract on the personal best production. Warner Brothers had already spent $6 million and counting for Greystoke, and they still did not have any film to show for their patients. In order to resume production on personal best and to save his professional reputation, Robert Towns signed over the rights 
to that Greystoke script that he had been so enamored with to Warner Brothers. Their seven-year option with the Burroughs estate for the rights were about to expire, and they needed to get this film underway. They were not willing to wait for Town to get his act together with Personal Best. Now, Town hoped that Personal Best, when it was finally released, that it would succeed, and he would be asked to resume the duties back on Greystoke. But unfortunately for Town, it was a financial failure. Instead, the studio went with Hugh Hudson on the strength of the eventual Oscar-winning Chariots of Fire. It was not released into theaters yet, but they had screened it in its completed form before its release, and they really thought this was going to be a dynamite film. They gave him a choice of a lot of different projects to follow Chariots of Fire with, and Greystoke would be chosen among several projects to take on for the next directorial effort. Chariot's producer, David Putnam, he also joined Hudson in the deal. But Putnam bowed out because he felt when he was looking at Greystoke more closely that it would be a nightmare to produce. It would require a lot of studio control, very tight monitoring, and he'd now be dealing with a much more established director in Hughes. He also had no experience with films requiring visual effects, and he envisioned that the costs and the schedule were going to spin out of control, and he did not want to ruin his reputation just when it was beginning to take off. Hudson felt betrayed by Putnam leaving, but he was determined to make the best of this opportunity and become a big-name director. After he couldn't find any other producers that he wanted to work with that were available, Hudson would produce Greystoke in addition to directing it, which he found very stressful, often exhilarating though. Hudson visited with Robert Town, just to be polite. Hudson knew that he was tasked with delivering Town's favorite project to completion without his further input. Town was courteous to Hudson, but he was not interested in offering any additional advice. It was just too bitter a pill to swallow. In 1982, Town would file another lawsuit against the same targets for allegedly having his rights deprived of making Greystoke. He claimed that David Geffen had coerced him into signing the story rights away. You know, this longtime pet project, Town described the feeling of guilt and shame akin to being raped by having it taken away from him. He wanted $110 million in damages and for Warner Brothers to lose the rights to distribute Personal Best and Greystoke. And in the deal that he had made with them to continue directing Personal Best, they had first look rights to his other screenplay, Tequila Sunrise. Geffen dismissed all of this as nonsense. And the battle in court would begin and kind of end for town without much to say. The town script that Hudson was working with stood at the time 240 pages long, and it was still missing the third act. Town, in his mind, he knew the ending that he wanted, but he could never quite get it into writing. Something about Tarzan getting a childhood disease that he was not immune to and having to return back to his jungle home. Even incomplete, it would have run four hours long in its current state. It needed editing down to at least half its length, including putting in a proper ending. Quite an ordeal for the screenwriters who were going to be taking this on. Over the next nine months, Hugh Hudson and Michael Austin, the new screenwriter, reduced the jungle portion of town script, and they fleshed out John's assimilation into civilized society. Hudson strove for realism and what is, you know, really a, a fantastical story. He would spin his yarn as if it was something that could have occurred in history. And to increase the feasibility of the character actions, Hudson brought in many experts on psychology, on sociology, on primatology. You know, it was very heavily researched to try to make this as plausible and as realistic as possible. The film underwent another title change at that time to Greystoke, the creation of Tarzan, 
and his epic adventures. Another mouthful, but after contemplating another improbable title, Greystoke, the Seventh Earl, Lord John Clayton, Tarzan of the Apes, it would officially finally, in the end, be dubbed Greystoke, the Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, because they wanted to get the word Tarzan in there so that people would understand what this was about. Tarzan is not mentioned as a character or as a name at all within the course of the movie. John Alcott, I just talked about him in the previous episode for The Beastmaster. He took over for the originally slated cinematographer David Watkin. Watkin worked with Hudson on Chariots of Fire, but as the shoot drew closer, he revealed that he was not going to shoot in Africa because he had heard there were numerous spiders and deadly spiders there, and he was a lifelong arachnophobe. He did actually shoot some of this film without credit. Some of the jungle set scenes that were done at Elstree Studios, he did as a favor when John Alcott became unavailable for a time. And kind of ironically, Watkin actually received an Academy Award for Best Cinematography the next year for out of Africa. He did go to the continent and shoot that there. Spiders or not. Now, when the script began to deviate significantly from his original treatment, Robert Town used the pseudonym of P.H. Vazic, the name of his recently deceased Hungarian sheepdog. He did not want any credit from what resulted from his longtime passion project, seeing how much it was being taken away from him and altered. Town felt devastated at losing what he felt was going to be his greatest picture, a philosophical and ethical treatise on precious life being systematically devoured by civilization. Town never would see the finished film. He screened a few minutes before he began to cry, and he could watch no more. Julian Sands, he was cast in the main role of Lord Greystoke, but delays to the production caused him to eventually move on. In 1982, there would be another up-and-coming actor to take the role. New York-born, Swiss-Frenchman Christopher Lambert, he took the title role. Lambert was recently fired from an acting conservatory in Paris, but within three months, he was hired for Greystoke. Reportedly, during his audition, Hudson merely just stared at him for a whole half hour. Hudson had been looking for a dancer who might fill the role, somebody very athletic, but he really couldn't find anyone who was the right fit. He gave other actors a look. Viggo Mortensen famously was one of them. But Lambert's intense and mysterious look gave him the edge to get the role. Unlike prior Tarzans, Lambert was not a muscle man. He was not an Olympics champion at all. Hughes did not want an unnatural physique to be playing Tarzan. He figured the jungle is a fast-moving, dangerous place, and a really muscular guy could not run or swing through the trees with cat-like reflexes that he needed. He could be strong, but he needed to be very agile as well. After accepting the role Lambert, he encountered a major issue that nearly cost him the job altogether. He was madly in love at that time with the French actress named Natalie Bai, who had recently moved in with him in the Parisian suburbs prior to him leaving for London to work on Greystoke. Lambert, he was growing lonely and he frequently would travel back to Paris to be with her, and that caused issue with Hugh Hudson's scheduling because Lambert seemed to be not taking the film very seriously. So Hudson gave Lambert an ultimatum. He either had to commit to the role, or he could stay in Paris with Natalie Bai. He knew he was going to choose his sweetheart above this film, and so he headed back home to be with her. However, upon arrival home, he found that the new love in his life was gone. The only thing that she left behind was a message on his answering machine that she was in love with another actor, Johnny Halliday, and she could no longer be with him. He was devastated, so much so that he would put himself full bore into this role in Greystoke to overcome his heartbreak. 
In preparation for the bulk of the film, Lambert worked extensively with the chimpanzees, and he witnessed how they would react instinctively to things instead of thinking them out. So he was going to act instinctively instead of contemplating what he was going to do. Hudson tried to work with real apes to surround Lambert with, but he determined that it was just never going to work out. Instead of putting children in ape suits, Hudson wanted little people, no taller than five foot three, dancers and athletes and mimes, people who could accurately mimic apes. There were about a half dozen real chimps and a dozen humans in chimp suits in the mix. Carlo Rambaldi, he was assigned in the late 1970s to make ape suits, but he left after delays. They brought in makeup expert Rick Baker. Sometime later, he would deliver stunningly realistic primate suits made by 80 craftspeople at a London factory, and it cost about $7 million just for the suits alone. Extended arms were used to capture the lengthy reach of primates, and at the end of these arms, there were mechanized hands that could perform a variety of realistic movements and gestures. The heads, including the mouths and the eyes and the ears, they were also mechanized to give realistic expressions to these apes. Along with all of this, there were primatology experts who would give the actors their behavioral cues, including constructing this intricate hierarchy among all of these ape characters that they would perform by. Peter Elliott, he was somebody who came in to audition to be one of the apes. He observed the chimps at the London Zoo before his audition. And while he was there, he gave such a convincing portrayal that they hired him, not only as an actor, but as the head of research and development for the film. He studied with primatologist consultant Roger Fouts. And in the film, Elliot portrayed the key role of Tarzan's ape father, Silverbeard, although he is listed in the credits as Elliot W. Kane. Greystoke would start for Elliot a long and distinguished career acting and choreographing primate roles in such films as Gorillas in the Mist, Harry and the Hendersons, and Congo. Now for Jane... Hudson pursued American fashion model Andy McDowell after seeing her on a magazine cover. Hudson had hired McDowell primarily because she resembled Isabel Adjani, who he had originally slotted for the role. Warner Brothers had nixed the idea of Adjani because they did not want two French lead actors for their big film. Jane represented McDowell's first professional acting role. Hudson liked McDowell because she was photogenic and she exuded certain traits that Jane would have, shyness, vulnerability, and innocence. However, Hudson felt that her South Carolina accent did not fit with the role of Jane and her delivery, being a novice actress, was unconvincing. So, Glenn Close, she was somebody who had screen tested for the Jane role, but she was considered too old to pair with Lambert. She had heard about their difficulties, and she volunteered to dub her voice over McDowell's, and Hudson found that acceptable. McDowell found the dubbing by Glenn Close shocking and heartbreaking. So Hudson, to appease her, he put her voice in the movie. She had to dub the sounds of Alice Clayton giving birth. McDowell credits kind words by critic Pauline Keel for saving her self-esteem in the end. She began taking acting lessons to make sure that this was not going to happen again for any role that she had taken henceforth. Like Lambert, they wanted somebody who was going to be a relative unknown for the part, because Hudson wanted audiences to not have any preconceived notions of how these main actors should be or should behave. He wanted audiences coming into the story with fresh minds and a blank slate. Hudson would fill in the remainder of the roles with established and esteemed actors to support these two newcomers. And one of those esteemed actors was Ralph Richardson. The Earl of Greystoke, the sixth one, was his final role, to whom the film is dedicated. Hugh Grant, he was brought in here by the casting director, but Hudson decided that Lord Esker, the role that Hugh Grant was going for, 
the would-be suitor to Jane, he should be older than Hugh Grant was at the time. But if Grant had been cast, we in the audience would have seen him try to romance Andy McDowell 10 years prior to their famous pairing in Four Weddings and a Funeral. In another coincidence of actors who did not make the cut, Mariam Dabo was one of the actors that tried out for the role of Jane Porter, and obviously she didn't get it. During her audition, she determined that Hugh Hudson had another person that he had already wanted for the role in mind, so he had really overlooked her, but he didn't overlook her all his life. Fifteen years later, they ran into each other while they were at a dinner party, and the circumstances were much different. Dabo won a very important role in Hudson's life. They were married in 2003 and have remained a couple to this day. Now, with the cast set, many locations were scouted. Nothing matched Africa in authenticity, though. The shoot took place in Cameroon, West Africa, close to Gabon, where Burroughs set his original story, as well as in parts of the UK. Production designer Stuart Craig spent five months meticulously recreating the jungle on a soundstage at Elstree Studios. He formed the trees and the vines and the plant life and the mountains and a very large waterfall. The studio shoot was done because it gave better control of the animals, as well as the weather and lighting conditions that were necessary from scene to scene, especially involving rain and steam. The weather conditions in Cameroon really made wearing the ape suits all day intolerable for the actors, so it was just a better fit all around to do it in a soundstage. They used a vast library of recently recorded sounds from the jungle in Cameroon to add to the authenticity of the environments within the studio. Now the story here contrasts the jungle with civilization. One is heaven, one is hell. Which is which probably will depend on where you originally came from. Darno, he's like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He tells his Adam, the future John Clayton, to give up living free for these civilized notions of morality, to partake in the knowledge of good and evil by coming to Europe, tellingly the tavern and inn on the edge of civilization that Philippe and John stay at in their first encounter with other civilized people is called the Limbo Bar. There's also this time-old contrast between nature versus nurture about the ills and the benefits of absolute freedom versus the creature comforts of a pampered life that comes with societal expectations. Hudson's first cut for Greystoke in the end ran over three hours. He knew that was not going to work for a commercial release, so he trimmed down as much as he could and still retain his original vision. Two hours and 40 minutes was his desired cut. He felt he could cut no more and retain the impact that he desired. The film was pegged for a Christmas 1983 release, but it would get delayed. Preview screenings met with lackluster reactions. So Warner Brothers ordered some reshoots to repair what was not working. Some minor roles were cut out. Some larger roles were trimmed down to bit parts. Warner cut out about 25 minutes of the jungle scenes, specifically targeting violent content. They thought they were going to get an R rating. They wanted to secure a PG rating if they could, so it was trimmed quite a bit down. Vangelis, he was the composer who worked with Hugh Hudson on the Chariots of Fire score, really to smashing success. He actually came in to do the score for Greystoke, but he suffered creator's block. He could not produce for whatever reason. John Scott came in at the last minute to compose the music, on a very abbreviated schedule, and he did quite a wonderful job given there was very little time to do it. Despite its bleak subject matter, Greystoke would still go on to make its money back at the box office, even at 30 to $40 million. It lingered in the top 10 for two whole months, and it garnered a total of $45 million in the United States, and it did even better overseas, especially in Great Britain. It would also earn three Academy Award nominations, one for the late Ralph Richardson for his Best Supporting Role, Rick Baker and Paul Engelin for Best Hair and Makeup, and Michael Austin and P.H. Vazic for Best Adapted Screenplay. Yes, 
Robert Town continued to let his dog take credit, even when it was nominated for an Academy Award. I would say as a film, Greystoke's best and most enduring scenes occur in the jungle set first half. That was mostly Robert Town's contribution, so kudos to Robert Town. Even though it was altered by Hudson and Austin to a certain extent and then butchered by the studio, those scenes are still very compelling. The Michael Austin scripted scenes in Britain, they have a share of compelling moments, but the pace during those scenes drags more and it lacks a consistent dramatic tension. They are not what really sells this film. When John is brought to Scotland, the film does begin to experience a few prolonged lulls. You know, the film is peppered with powerful and enduring moments, but the film as a whole, if you take it in its entirety, is on the uneven side. The attempt to deliver a grounded take here is very refreshing. It does play for today's audiences because we're in this superhero era. It really does play like a superhero origin story that did not receive a proper franchise of follow-up efforts, even though they intended that it could. It is a beautifully crafted production. Despite its very generous PG rating, I would say caution younger kids away from this film. It does contain not only a lot of nudity, but there's a lot of brutality in this film, especially toward the apes and some of the young actors here. You know, Hudson here really was delivering a film aimed more at adults than children, even though the studio wanted to get an all-ages experience out of it. The scenes of ape deaths alone are not going to make for a fun family evening. You might have to console your crying children to continue to watch this movie that does not get any less bleak toward the end. But if you have kids who are inured to this kind of thing, I do think this is a very respectable movie, very worthwhile for all of the things that it does well. You know, perhaps Town might have delivered his masterpiece out of this, but he could have just as easily botched it. We don't know what would have happened, but I do think that what we get here is still gritty and substantial and thought-provoking enough to deliver a three-star movie out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that this is a worthwhile film if you like this kind of movie. Probably the best Tarzan movie that I have seen, even though there are many, many Tarzan films. A lot of them were kind of B-movies, but this definitely is a step in a very respectable direction, and I do think that Greystoke does deliver the goods necessary, enough to get three stars out of four. For many years after Greystoke, there was talk about doing a follow-up. So this would have been kind of an origin story to a superhero franchise done in an era before that was very commonplace. Stanley Cantor, one of the producers for Greystoke, he was continuously trying to do a follow-up. None of the original cast and crew seemed interested. Lambert, he read one of the scripts that Cantor had given him, and he thought that it was absolutely terrible and not at all what a sequel should be, so he passed on doing it. But Cantor actually did get another Tarzan film released, not an official sequel to Greystoke. It just happened to be a standalone film. Casper Van Dien would take the part, and it would result in the 1998 film called Tarzan and the Lost City, considered by many to be a pretty bad attempt at a Tarzan film. Lambert was right about that script in the end. That's it for Greystoke. If you have your own thoughts on Greystoke, if you've seen this and you like this movie, or maybe you have your problems with it and you want to impart your opinion to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. You can find links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram, just my email address. Any of those are adequate to get in touch with me. I think email address is probably the simplest and most direct. I answer a lot of emails there, so if I don't answer you right away, please be patient. I will get to them eventually. And for next week, I'm going to kind of continue on with a film that I mentioned during the body of this review. Another film featuring Tarzan from the 1980s, from 1981, Bo Derek, starring in Tarzan the Ape Man. Boy, I have a lot to say about that film. Not a lot of great things, by the way, but 
I definitely have a lot to say. And you should check that out before I get to next week's review. Tarzan the Ape Man. It's an R-rated film. Don't watch it with your kids, by the way. There's a lot of sex and nudity in that one. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Music